Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 8th, 2016, and my guest is Chris Arnotti. He holds a PhD in physics and was a trader on Wall Street for 20 years. In 2012, he left Wall Street to photograph people and, and to explore the lives of some folks in forgotten corners of America and to write about them, drug addicts, the poor, and others. And he writes thoughtfully on Twitter and elsewhere, and we'll link to that. Chris, welcome to EconTalk. Um, thanks for having me. What we're going to talk about today is your evolution from trader to photographer and what you learned along the way. And, of course, you were in a front row seat for some important uh, moments of American financial history uh, in the recent decades. And now you're in a front row seat of a place where there aren't that many people seated, which is the people exploring uh, the lives of folks who are, who are struggling in America in, in particular ways. And I found what you've written about both of those things, trading and your photography work to be absolutely uh, fascinating. So I want to start with your work as a trader. Uh, I want to start with the the Mexican bailout, uh, the Mexican crisis. What were you doing at that time in the trenches? This is uh, in 1995, but what were you doing in the lead up to that and how did you experience it? Yeah, I had gotten, uh, first of all, thanks for having me again. Um, I had gotten um, a job offer from Solomon Brothers, one of the uh, premier bond houses back in the old Wall Street, the one that's written about in Liar's Poker. Um, I got that offer and I joined in August 93, coming out of a PhD program um, in physics from Johns Hopkins. And I came to Wall Street knowing nothing about Wall Street. It, well, um, six months earlier, I didn't know what a bond was. I didn't know what a stock was. Um, but I had found out there were jobs being offered to people like myself on Wall Street and I trained myself. And they had put me in research. And um, my job was to apply my mathematical analytic background to look at trying to judge value and trying to understand the financial markets. Um, And in particular, I was uh, focused at the time on uh, the international markets, um, something that had just started to get back into being um, hip again, which was investing in Latin America. Um, they called it emerging markets, so Mexico, Brazil, um, Argentina. Um, and for the first year on Wall Street, I helped the traders think about the products they were selling, think about the markets. And sometime middle of 94, actually, I think it was November of 94, I was promoted to the desk to trade um, um, be a be a trader in these products we were selling into Mexico, into Brazil. A little learning and, is a dangerous thing. <laughs> this is exciting. Um, yeah, you know those first years were that first year and a half was a a quick immersion into learning about markets um, and trying to forget a lot of my math and physics. Um, but they had promoted me to the desk really quickly, and within I think I started somewhere in November December on a trading floor, the ones you see on the TVs with, you know, a large empty floor with maybe 500 people sitting in front of computer screens um, all next to each other. And the product we were, we were, we were focused on is um, helping clients um, as well as helping our own bank, um, Solomon Brothers Investment Bank, get invest in Mexico. And Mexico was a hot product at the time. Um, there was NAFTA. There was a bunch of... Um, um, strong incentives for people to get into Mexico. And so we offered them a product to get into Mexico. And then very shortly in my career, December 20th, I believe it was, 1994, Mexico, which at that time had what most countries had, which was to offer incentives for people to come invest in the country, they basically had their currency fixed. They remove any risk of devaluation, any risk of any additional um, confusion. They may have said, well, our currency is going to be fixed, the Mexican peso. And then on December 20th, they changed their mind about that and they devalued the peso. Yeah, it's fixed until it isn't. Yes, yeah, it's fixed until it isn't. And 
that set off a whole chain of events. Um, I think it even gave it, they gave it the name, the tequila crisis. Yep. Um, that was in many ways one of the first tests of kind of the new financial model, what that, that point was, and, and a test of the, the new incoming Clinton administration and how they would handle their, um, their dealings with the financial markets, which at that time was undergoing large um, changes from sleepy private partnerships to large public companies um, and largely being deregulated. And I would add people investing their own money to a world where people were investing other people's money. Right. right. That was part that of the partnership transition to from partnership to public company was I've suggested is partly the attractiveness of being able to borrow money and, and um, which had not been the case particularly before that. Yeah, I mean that that's very much the case. And I when I joined Wall Street in ninety three, it still had the culture of a partnership. Um and a lot of the senior managers still behaved as if this was their company in the sense that they put their money was invested in the company and what happened to the company happened to them personally. And that changed over my career in Wall Street. Um but the the Mexico crisis was really in many ways the first test of the the new global financial markets. Um, so, and I want to talk briefly, before you go on. I want to talk briefly about the kind of product you were selling, which was somewhat complicated. We don't have to go into all the details, uh, but but I think it's interesting when when people think about, gee, you know, this sector of the world mark world markets or this country is doing well. I, I ought to get in on that. Uh, it's not so straightforward because for one reason. Sometimes, especially in emerging markets, they don't have a well-developed stock market where you could say by an index of their stock funds. Um, and so it's not always what, what was creative about what Solomon Brothers and other banks were doing at the time was giving investors an opportunity, a vehicle for investing. And it was a little bit, it was a complicated vehicle, correct? That's correct. We, my job was helping, my desk job was helping, was, was not in equities as much as bonds and helping people invest in basically Mexican government bonds. And that's harder said than done. That's harder done than said because there's a lot of regulations. There's tax, different, different tax regimes, different issues that people generally don't think about. Like, you know, how do you, how do you prove ownership of a bond? How do you, you just can't go into a country and buy a bond and, you know, be done with it. There's a lot of issues, custodial issues, ownership issues, regulatory issues, tax issues. And what our bank and other banks were offering was a simple vehicle. We sell you this vehicle that says you own, you effectively have the ownership of a T-bill or, or a bond in, in Mexico. And and that was a bond presumably with a, a fair, an attractive rate of interest because right. it was I somewhat risky. And I believe the set days at the time where the Mexican bonds were 35% yield or 30% yield. Um, but it was denominated in, in pesos, so you had the risk of a devaluation. You took the risk of the currency between Mexico and the United States. Now, on top of that, besides just facilitating customers going in and buying these things, we also provided them leverage, and that was a big additional benefit. Explain. We... Um, so we lent the, if a customer gave us $100, let's say, and said, "Give me, I want to invest in Mexican bonds, we gave them exposure to $400 worth of bonds by lending them money. Kind of like, you know, non-recourse finance, and they call it, but very similar to what your $100 was a down payment on an exposure to a much larger size of bonds. So we, we, we lent money to the customers as well. It was, a, it was a kind of structured product. We give you exposure, we get you, we get you invested in Mexico, and at the same time, we lend you money to do it. And let's just, um, let's just stop there for a second. The, the advantage of leverage is that the, you know, the upside is very, very large because uh, you're only spending 100 of your own, but you're effectively holding, say, 400 of, of the asset. The downside is if it goes down, you can get damaged very badly. That's correct. You, it's 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 very much like it's supercharged. So, so I want to invest in Mexico, but I want it supercharged, and it's something that um, you know started a very dangerous process of 
once we walked into the world of providing leverage, providing access was one thing. Helping customers get into Mexico is one thing. Providing them leverage, giving them supercharged Mexico access is, is, is a lot riskier. It's a lot more profitable, um, can be, but it can also be a lot riskier. And when the currency devalued, when the crisis started, it went from being very risk, very good to very bad very quickly. Who were some of the customers? Who were, who were the who were who was buying these these structured assets? Um, well, a lot of mutual funds, um, a lot of pension funds, um, a lot of um, hedge funds, primarily hedge funds, um, but also we were we were doing it for ourselves as well. So we, the bank, had proprietary positions. Um, so if we provided, you know, we we did that we did customers with let's say a, a, a hedge fund in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, we would also, they would do, you know, they would do 200 million and we would do 200 million because we would ride along as they say. So we, we also were investing our own money in it because it was a trade that everybody wanted to do. And it was kind of what you call in wall street, surfing the wave. When the wave comes, you surf it. Make your, make uh, strike while the iron is hot, make, make a killing while Mexico's having this great economic resurgence and not just enjoy it, but amplify it. And the the period of time was very conducive to taking risk. It was we were coming out of a, a pretty pretty rough recession from the late eighties and Clinton was in power and there was this NAFTA in the air and it was, you know, Latin America itself was coming out of default. They had defaulted in the eighties and they were they were they were making these strong claims that they were not, there'd be large trading global partners. So globalization was in the air. And so it was a natural thing to say, I'm going to take advantage of this movement and I'm going to invest in Mexico. And so why, um, just a, a, a small correction, I, I think the recession was in 91 and it, it was actually fairly mild. So I think it was more like a speed bump than a, than a, a serious recession, and I think it did encourage a lot of people to be overly optimistic about how things were going to be going. And certainly, the Mexican economy did very well initially as as NAFTA went into place. What went wrong? Why did um, why did Mexico have to devalue, and why did they ultimately face the risk of default on those bonds that were the underlying asset for the products that you were selling? Um, a lot of people if, if have a lot know. of different. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people have different different ideas. Um, budget deficits, um, current account deficits, um, spending too much money, um, not taking enough money in, um, having a fixed exchange rate. Um, generally, you know, when 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 markets go up too fast, they often go down quickly afterwards. I don't have a good answer in terms of what I think is the the reason. But it's some point. The, yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, at some point it became clear that Mexico was – the government of Mexico was going to struggle to repay the promises it had to, – to honor the promises it had made with their bonds. Right. They they, they initially devalued, which – once they devalued the currency, I believe it was 312 or something of that main, 3.12, um, and then they devalued it 15 percent, 20 percent. To give themselves a competitive advantage, they wanted to have a weaker currency to, so they could export more. Um, but this hurt the investments of everybody in Mexico. So if you were a foreigner and you had bought one of my products or our products, you now lost a little money because Mexico had devalued. And that began a exodus. People started feeling very uncertain. They didn't have any confidence anymore in Mexico because you had told me the currency was fixed. Now it's floating. Now it's not fixed, so people started leaving. And of course, and, that makes it harder for Mexico to use debt to finance any of the promises they've made previously. Because obviously, that is, that's correct. And so it became a vicious cycle where people started leaving, and that put more pressure on the currency, and the currency devalued more. They tried to they tried to hold the currency, but they were running out of money in terms of uh, their central banks, and so it eventually got to be very ugly. Um, near the end of um, near the end of December, near the end of '94, um, into, into the beginning of '95. What was it? What was it like in the office in those days? Well, I had to cancel my vacation. It was, <laughs> um, you know, it was my first first six months on the desk, and uh, you know, there was um, a sense of chaos. And um, I was supposed to go for Christmas vacation to visit my family in uh, Florida, and that never happened. So. Um, 
for me, it was great in terms of personal because I learned a lot. And um, it, it was, I to use a better, it was exciting. Um, but, you know, it was, a, it was a time and place where I, I believe I slept in the office one weekend, that first weekend, you know, prior to Christmas, um, just trying to understand the positions we had been put in. One of the things I think a lot of people don't understand on the outside is, and one of the, some of the chaos that takes place in investment banking is nobody really understood the product we were selling until the crisis happened. And then we she realized, didn't need to. <laughs> right. And then we realized, wait, we had done, we got ourselves into a very, very bad position. We had put ourselves into a really ugly position where we, we stood to lose a lot of money on risk we took, we didn't understand. And so, you know, when I say I spent a weekend in the office, um, that weekend in the office was trying to help the group understand what we had gotten, the risk we had gotten ourselves into. And that literally meant putting every trade and, you know, 2,000, 5,000 positions into a large spreadsheet by hand so I could, you know, graph the risk. Just see, just see and, how much money you might be at risk right. of losing. And I, I, and I remember there one day when Mexico and had announced they were going to devalue again, I had a little printout of the money we would lose. We didn't know where the currency was going to open. Um, um, it was, you know, it didn't open until 10 o'clock US, New York time. And during that weekend, I put together a graph, a table of if it opens here, we lose this much. If it opens here, you know, some of the numbers were huge. Um, if it opens at six, we lose $40 million. If it opens at 12, we lose, you know, $500 million. And I just remember standing there, this kid who had just gotten this job on Wall Street with holding this, <laughs> holding this little piece of paper yeah, and handing it to the CEO <laughs> of the firm, you know, who's looking at it and kind of blaming me. I'm just, you know, delivering the bad news. But, you know, he kind of, he kind of implied that we, I'd gotten us into this awful mess. So, <laughs> and what did it know, open it, at? Do you remember? Um, it opened, I think, at five spot eight. Five point eight. We lost. We lost on that move about twenty five million dollars in that one day, um, and it came as a shock because no one had really thought they had this this awful risk. And, and of course, so, it wasn't over at that point. You didn't know. No, it was, it it was by no means over. We didn't know where it was going to go. It just opened there, and we didn't know where it was going to go next. And for the next week and a half, it was really just complete all hands on deck, trying to figure out, trying to manage. You know, I always say it's like a, it's like a being on a small ship in a hurricane, trying to always just figure out how to survive the next, you know, wave or blast of wind. Because when these crises happen, you start finding out you have all this exposure and risk you didn't know you had. Um, um, because you, it's kind of like, mathematical speak, it's second and third order effects that come into play. But part of the challenge is it's one thing for uh, you, as you said, Solomon Brothers had invested their own money. But, of course, they had sold products to a lot of clients who, when they saw the headline about Mexico devaluing, had a thought, hmm, don't I own some stuff in Mexico? I wonder what happened to that. And they call, and you have to explain to them that that asset that you told them was going to be this fabulous thing. It's not so fabulous. Uh, so there must have been a lot. There's a lot of that, too, you've written about, right? Right. I, you know, dealing with customers who are angry, you know, the, the, head, the chief economist for Latin America at the time um, had written a piece on December 15th. Chief I economist believe. for Solomon Brothers. Yeah, for the, for the, for the Latin America, not, not for the U.S., who was you know, chief economist of, who covered the Latin America right. region, had written a, a piece December 15th or December 13th saying the probability that Mexico devalues is zero. Zero. He didn't. He didn't say small. He said zero. And then he went on vacation oh, for Christmas. Nice. He never came back. Yeah. Uh, so you know, Chris Arnotti so, missed so he, his vacation. He got his, but not such a good deal. <laughs> um, you know. So you, you get a lot. You had a lot of customers calling up saying, "Hey, I just you just said that the probability makes the default was zero. What's going on?" So you know, everybody was in a sinking ship, and people tend to blame whoever they can blame to get um and so you you're trying to com you're trying to do a combination of survive yourself and also help your customers survive in, in, in the most equitable way. 
Um, some people aren't equitable, equitable, but we did our best to, to be you know, as above board as possible. So the U.S. government at that point, somewhere around there, um, intervenes in a very uh, – what the, was described by many at the time to be a um, modest intervention. They merely guaranteed $50 billion of Mexican debt which gave Mexico the opportunity to refinance uh, because people now knew that the U.S. government stood behind it. That's right. And the, the person who spearheaded that movement was Larry Summers, um, who was just newly um, appointed, I believe, as an undersecretary to uh, the Treasury, to, to, to Rubin. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he it kind of became the blueprint for a lot of behavior in terms of government behavior towards Wall Street going forward. But we, our customers, our customers at the time had a lot of risk. We had a lot of risk, but our, our competitors, other banks were doing this in much larger size than we were. So when that, when, when the government bailed out, I'll use that word, when the government bailed out Mexico, um, and it wasn't just the government, it was an IMF, it was a, a consortium, when they did that, they really bailed out us and they really bailed out other banks, including Lehman. Lehman was the one who was rumored to have had the the largest exposure to Mexico, um, Lehman Brothers, who still existed then. Um, so personally, it was a great benefit to us on Wall Street. Um, it wasn't sold as that. Um, no. No, but, but it really set in motion it kept us from, it's hard to explain how much we could have lost because there were some very technical things going on. But when we had sold these products, we didn't really do our, our, our homework correctly and we had a lot more risk than we thought we had. And there was a genuine probability, chance, that we were gonna lose a lot of money had the bailout not happened. And that wasn't lost on, I, I don't believe that was lost on, on the regulators when they, when they, on, on the, the Treasury, when they bailed, when they put together this bailout. They knew that Wall Street was exposed in a heavily wet, heavy way. And yeah, so uh, this really, um, to me, was kind of a turning point. We'd had a moment, we'd had examples like this before 1984, Continental Illinois, but uh, I always like to point out that Alan Greenspan is this, supposedly this great Ayn Rand libertarian. He testified in front of Congress about this bailout and said it was a terrible idea, but we had to do it. Um, so basically here was the so-called great uh, capitalist free market guy saying that we have to cushion the losses for people who made bad bets uh, and have them lose zero instead of paying any price, what's the real price they should have paid. And, and, and at the same time, you know, Time Magazine, I think this was the event that put Summers, Greenspan, and Rubin on the cover, the, the, the three men who saved the world. The idea. Right. And so, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it really was, you know, when you, when you, when you look back at the times, I look back at the times, it really was sold as saving the world. And, it, you know, I can't tell you the relief we felt on Wall Street because we went from facing a half billion dollar loss. $250 million loss, it's hard to know what we would have lost to making money. And, you know, you, they could easily say, and you said six months later, it, it all worked. Look, Mexico was doing better. The guarantee um, never had to be invoked. It, did, it was free. The people. Right, right. And, 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 the treasury can, and the Treasury can say, look, we made money on this. We, yep. And then they did. Technically, they made money. They put in $50 billion. They got back more than $50 billion. So it became this viewed as this win-win, everybody won. Yep. Um, Treasury won, the markets won. What is lost, you know, which is harder to see, and this is a big problem when you, when you, when you do policy, it's easy to look at numbers and say, look, my policy worked because of the following numbers show that it worked. It's very hard to look at longer-term consequences. And certainly, I can tell you from a personal standpoint, one of the longer-term consequences of what that bailout was a lesson, hmm, you know, I can get myself into a bad position and I'm pretty sure I'm going to get bailed out. And if um, I had a complicated asset and structured product that I didn't fully understand and I 
didn't lose any money on it the first time, the incentive to fully understand it the second time goes way down. You know, um, it's, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like you know, you get you you go through a dangerous curve speeding, and you kind of your car kind of like you know starts tipping over, but it doesn't, and you go through. Hey, that was fun. Let's do it again. I can you know, there's no consequences, and it really let. It's hard for me to to, to explain to people who weren't there how how much it really changed the culture. Uh, it helped. It helped transform the culture that was already transforming of Wall Street from relatively cautious um, banks, cautious because it was their money, and they suffered consequences when they lost to being these large bureaucracies that were generally felt no lesser lesser responsibility to the to, to, to the broader markets and to themselves and to their customers. So it's easy for us now and. With that hindsight, although you were on the ground and you have a different perspective than I do, but I always uh, try to put some weight on people who, at the time, were aware of these issues. So in an essay I wrote on the financial crisis, I quoted uh, Willem Buiter. I don't know if I pronounce his last name correctly, but at the time, he was an economics professor at the University of Cambridge. He now is, ironically, the chief economist at Citigroup. The last yes, time I, I looked. Know him. So <laughs> I the, know him. At the time, in 1995, he said, th- after this bailout, by the way, you said the Treasury put in $50 billion and made a great return. They didn't even put in the 50 They just risked it, and they didn't have to put it in, as it turned out, in some sense. Uh, here's what Boyder said. He said, this is not a great incentive for efficient operations of financial markets because people do not have to weigh carefully risk against return. They're given a one-way bet with the U.S. Treasury and the international community underwriting the default risk. That makes for lazy private investors who don't have to do their homework figuring out what the risks are. And I I paraphrase it as all profit and no loss makes Jack a dull boy. Uh, If you don't risk the downside, you're not going to be as prudent as you would otherwise be. The other point I want to make, and I think it's it's just really important, you've really touched on in an important way, is the way it was sold. And uh, we talk on this program about the bootlegger and Baptist hypothesis of government regulation. So the bootlegger and Baptist, you have a bootlegger who wants liquor sales uh, to be banned on Sunday so that he can make money selling illegal uh, whiskey out of the back of his uh, out of his back of his car. The Baptists don't want liquor sales on Sunday because they think it's God's day, the Lord's day, and it shouldn't. It's not appropriate to drink on Sunday. So uh, the politician. Uh, bans liquor sales on Sunday because it's the Lord's Day. He doesn't mention the fact that he's making a lot of bootleggers happy. And this is, correct. this is a perfect example of it, and it disgusts me that my profession continually justifies these kind of bailouts looking at the upside. Oh, we saved the world. There was no crisis. We made sure Mexico didn't default. That could have thrown things into turmoil. It would have been bad for Mexico. We could have had a recession in the United States, all of which is true. Possibly, though we'll never know. We don't know whether Lehman Brothers uh, would have gone bankrupt or would have had a catastrophic systemic problem as a result. What we do know is that they later had an even worse one because they had been incentivized to be less cautious with other people's money. And other people were happy to give them that money because they thought that they'd get it back anyway. And so to me, this is, you know, I don't know what the quote real reason was. I just know that the thing that gets waved around like a banner is we saved the world. What really happened is they say for sure they saved Wall Street. And that was just the quiet part that nobody talked about, even other than the occasional remark from Well and Buiter. Right. And I think it, it also occurred exactly at the same time that how banks were being run and how they were being structured was dramatically changing. So again, when I joined Wall Street, you still had companies, Goldman, for instance, which was a private partnership. And Solomon Brothers had been a private partner. They were one of the first to go public, I believe in 87, 86. But I had gotten there early enough that a lot of the senior management had, had been partners and still behaved in a way in which they thought of every decision as the way they thought was is this is this a prudent risk to take for me, not just you know not just for, um, for 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 the bank that is I mean not just for me. So there was a real and that changed as the companies got larger and became more bureaucratic, and traders like myself didn't have to put our money at risk. That really changed how people took risk. The the two t- t- 
combine the, 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 the fact that it wasn't your money at risk and even more the fact that now government in some senses was underwriting failure really incentivized people to just go crazy. So you and I, I've followed you on Twitter for a while now and I've read a number of your essays. You and I have a, we don't agree on a lot of things politically. Uh, no, that's right. But we agree on this. So why is it, do you think, that we don't have more company? Um, there are people who are angry about the bailouts. There are people who are angry about TARP. Why is it that so many – what are your thoughts? Well, let me ask it a different, different way. When you think about your colleagues at the time and the management above you, if you told them the way you see this, the effects of this, would they say, yeah, yeah, I think you're right? Or would they say, no, 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 you're over-exaggerating. It really was necessary. It was, it's important, blah, blah, blah. What, what do you think other people I think, think you about get, you this? Get, you get kind of two, two camps. You get, um, and I think the bulk of the camp is we needed to do it, um, which is the, and again, not to get too political here, it's just the kind of, the kind of what I call the, the squishy middle of both parties, which is, um, uh, that you know, it's we just need to do whatever we do just to just to get to, to, to promote growth and move on, kick the can down the road crowd, um, and the tech man. I call them the technocrats, you know, who just looked in from a sheerly numbers perspective and said, hey, you know, you know, Mexico growth did better, U.S. growth did better, the stock market did better. It's kind of these people who only really look at spreadsheets and how they analyze things. There was there was a tail a rump on both in in Wall Street of, of both political parties, mostly mostly libertarian leaning people, who looked at it and said, no, this is just wrong, this is just wrong. Um, but it's very hard to say something's wrong when it benefits you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, that's the, we all be have, honest. Yeah, we all have our own inner bootlegger and Baptist. We have we know there are multiple reasons for why we do what we do, and we tend to focus on the ones that we think are high minded rather than self interested. Which is really, I mean, it's hard for me to really try to explain to people how out of control Wall Street got. Um, even from what, even the, you know, I was there from 93 to 2012. And, you know, even from 93 to the crisis, it, it was, it was just speeding up and speeding up and speeding up. And, you know, it was hard for me to, to really grasp what I got myself into coming from absolutely no financial background to when I got there in 93. But it seemed out of seemed kind of in control, but moving out of control. But by two thousand, you know, two thousand five was completely out of control. I but mean, at the time, just, in ninety five, I assume your main reaction to this set of events was relief. <laughs> oh hell, yeah! I mean, I could I could go on I could finally got to go on my vacation in February. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, and and it, it, believe me, I got paid a lot. You know, I mean, sure. let's let's be honest: is I, I had gone from making twelve thousand dollars as a grad student to my first year, you know, as a research guy, getting paid one hundred eighty thousand dollars. You know, that's you don't you don't get you don't really, you really get a, a bump up in pay and magnitude. <laughs> you know, yeah, and that's so, real money back in in nineteen ninety five. Yeah, uh, I mean, for somebody who was a PhD in physics who thought I was going to make thirty thousand dollars a year. I mean, that was that was big, and you know those things really impact you. You can try to try to be as ethical as possible, but when you get get money waved at you, it's you very know. hard. So let's let's um, go ahead in the timeline. Let's go to uh, two thousand and eight with the uh, TARP bailout of I think it was seven hundred plus seven ten seven twenty right. twenty billion dollars. Uh, you've written about how, and I've talked about how, uh, Paulson came to Congress and said, uh, you know, if we don't get this money to give to the banks, it's the world's going to end, literally said that. And uh, incredibly, Congress said no. So what was the reaction? Talk about what happened in the trenches and what were you doing at that time and how did you guys react to it? Um, I was a proprietary trader at that time. I was, I was risking the bank's money. And, um, where were you, you know, working? I was one of the, you weren't at Solomon Rose one of the, anymore, right? Yeah. I was at Citibank. Yeah. Solomon had become Citibank. Yeah. I had through various mergers. We had been bought by traveler. We had been bought by uh, Smith Barney and then they were bought by travelers. So we were a city group at this point we had gone from a company of 5,000 to a company of 250,000. Um, and so, you know, I had been one of the people who had been skeptical about the markets dramatic, um, rally credit markets um, from, from basically starting in 2003 
So I had been um, skeptical, but gotten run over. And they say, say, I kept expecting this to happen, um, but much earlier than it did happen. Um, So I was in a seat where people around me lost a lot of money um, and the firm lost a lot of money and people five rows over, 10 rows over lost $50 billion. I mean, tons of money. Um, And, you know, I had expected the markets to blow up. I hadn't expected it to get as far as it did. Um, And um, I think there was just a sense of disbelief that, you know, there was this people who were really, you know, there were a lot of people personally who were just very leveraged and they were like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. The banking sector is collapsing and I have, you know, I have a vacation house in the Hamptons. I have a, you know, five kids in private school. What am I going to do? People were personally miserable. Um, but the situation at the time, right up to TARP, and I'll never forget when someone mentioned that, you know, this, this idea that there was going to be a bailout. It just, it just propagated through the trading floor. Like, like, like almost as if, you know, there, everybody immediately fell in love. It was just this, it's everybody for, just, it's a cure for cancer. Sorry? It's a cure for cancer. Yeah. It's I mean, like, I mean, the trading floor is moved. I remember when the rumor first broke, the trading floor is moved, moved just, just, it went from somber to laughing and high fives. And it was interesting. There was, you know, looking back, there was never a moment once the rumor came out that anybody expected it not to happen. It was just a sense of, and I I don't know if you remember when the first vote came in the House of Representatives, the first vote failed. Yep. Um, and I remember it was came at like four thirty in the afternoons, three thirty in the afternoons, and we were had all been told it was going to pass. Everybody just assumed it was going to pass because this was so obviously right. You know, I, I figured was it seven hundred billion was the number. Um, it's seven twenty. Yeah, it, 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 there was no, there was no. It was just a bill saying we're giving, <laughs> yeah. we're, but with no, no real details, and so. I remember us watching the vote on C-SPAN on all the trading floor. And as the vote clearly started turning to being lost, people just didn't believe it. People just looked at it and said, no, no, don't worry. It's going to turn. It's going to turn. Even when the numbers just, you know, <laughs> were, were clearly there's no way it could turn. There was just this immense denial. That's how certain people were that it had to happen. And it really was vouched that way. This has to happen. Yeah, they were right, of course. Uh, because um, all Congress really did is say, uh, you know, Paulson showed up basically with a piece of paper and said, "It was like, I, seriously, I'm, I've talked to people on Capitol Hill about this. It was, it, he showed up, I think, with a single sheet of paper that said something like, uh, just give me this blank check. And they said, are you out of your mind? It doesn't work that way. They voted it down. And then the, as, as a friend of mine once said to my horror, well, then they fixed it, right? No, they didn't fix it. They larded it up with a bunch of pork for Congress that the final TARP bill has all kinds of special provisions that that are just unbearably painful to read about. You can go back, you can read them. You know, the special payoffs to a car manufacturer for their green car that somehow other cars don't get because they're not the right kind of green and a lot of payoffs in you, that. You know, when one thing that, you know, putting putting my pro-tarp hat on, my old banker hat on, you know, it, it really was... You really did save the markets in some senses, um, you know, but it came with no strings attached. I where we differ, you know, um, where we probably differ in terms of what we feel about it was, it was just seven hundred twenty million dollars, seven hundred twenty million billion that came really with no strings attached. And if there ever was a time to attach strings, oh yeah, <laughs> to say, oh yeah, okay, guys, you know what? The way I put it is, people say, "Well, look, TARP made money. It made money because you're not you're not accounting for it. They sold it cheap. There was nobody else willing to offer Salt Wall Street seven hundred twenty billion dollars of money with no no strings attached. Yeah. You have to charge people when you give them things to save them. So Treasury made money only in the sense that it gave it away free. Had it actually charged the market rate." for what they offered. And think about it. They offered Wall Street basically salvation. savior. Yeah. Salvation. You, 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 have to, you have to charge a price for salvation. And they gave Wall Street salvation at no charge. So, of course, it made money with no charge, but that's just not proper accounting. Yeah. And so, you know, I always tell people that 
there's a lot of details that got glossed over, but in all in the bailouts, there were all different things you could have done. You could have asked Wall Street to take take a loss on certain certain products. They call it a haircut. Yeah. Um, you know, I, Tim we Geithner, were prepared to take it. Tim Geithner we were prepared said, to take a Wall Street haircut. I had a spreadsheet built of you know just accepted. Here's what's going to happen if we take a 50% haircut. You know. And we, Wall Street, for all its problems, are generally, we call it, I use the term, we're big boys. We can take losses sometimes. That's kind of what we're supposed to do. And so people were prepared to take a greater, people were prepared to take a greater hit than they took. And the government really played their hand very badly in that sense. Yeah, I they think that's They could have got a wrong. lot more concessions. Yeah, and I, they could have got a lot more out of, out of the street than they, than they did. Well, they're, you know, it's, Tim Geithner said no haircut. People start to try, you know, people negotiate. People, as you say, AIG and others were willing to say, they're willing to take something, or they, they could have been asked to take something, and they were not even asked. And you say they played it badly. I think they played it very well in the sense that they took care of their customer, <laughs> which was Wall Street. I think it's, it's uh, for us, the, the non-bankers, they played it badly, but I don't think that was their goal. It's like when Hank Paulson talked to Lloyd Blankfein 30-something or 20-something times before the, the tarp came out. Uh, I, my joke was like, they weren't talking about what their kids did over the summer. They were talking about, I'm sure, Blankfein was explaining to him that this was absolutely essential. And I'm sure they both convinced themselves they were doing God's work when, in fact, they were sucking money out of the rest of us and making sure that nobody lost their house in the Hamptons. And that's I just mean, the, power, the power of the power of bubble think is extraordinarily strong and you become part of the culture. You know, everybody's friends with everybody. Everybody thinks the same way. Even if you don't feel like you're corrupt, if you're not, you know, you're trying to do your best to be ethical, you're part of a system that is by nature corrupt. Now, you know, one of the things that the other little dirty secret from the TARP period, from the crisis, the, the individuals most responsible for the losses the people who lost the $50 billion, the people who made the decisions that lost the $100 billion, they personally did very well. So, you know, if you look at it, if you look at like 250,000 employees that saw at Citibank, oh, 240,000, 235,000 employees did their job and made money. It was the 15,000 employees who lost $100 billion yeah. who, you know, who did. And those, that, that segment of the people who lost, and that's not just, that, I'm not just talking about Citibank. I'm talking about Lehman. I'm talking about um, Bear all Stearns. other firms, with Bear Stearns and, and, you know, Bank of America in Merrill. The people who, the, the individuals who generally lost the most money did the best financially. So, there was really nobody who came out of the crisis who should look back and said, I feel bad about what I did from a very self-selfish perspective. They got, they did well financially. Well, you said, you said no strings attached. Um, there was a government policy in place, Fiducia, that had strings attached that basically said when you blew up, management got replaced uh, TARP was basically an extra legal, uh, ad hoc, cobbled together uh, way to avoid that. And the other point I think to make is that, and you said they didn't, they did very well. Um, the leaders of Bear Stearns and Lehman, just to take the two examples that got a lot of attention, Jimmy Kane and Richard Fold, they quote lost a lot of money when the equity portion of their investment was wiped out, they were still left with an enormous amount. So it's oh, not yeah. like they were, um, I like what Jimmy Kane said, uh, the only people who are going to suffer are my heirs, not me. Because when you have a billion six and you lose a billion, you're not exactly like crippled, right? So yes, he lost a billion relative to, because he rolled the dice and he lost, but he's left with $600 million and he should have maybe arguably lost it all. But- he what did. was um what was Chuck, what was Chuck Prince payout when he got fired as CEO of Citibank in, in two, 40, 40 million you got a forty million parachute thirty million parachute um, but that's well. peanuts compared to you know fold fold also lost a billion dollars of paper wealth on the equity that he lost in in Lehman but he kept over five hundred million dollars 
<laughs> so, yeah, yeah, they did well. They did well. I, you know, people say, oh, they did pay a price. Well, they paid a price relative to what they could have paid if the world had worked out perfectly the way they had hoped. But that's not the right, way exactly. capitalism works. Okay, so let's, let's um, when, I'm going to get down off my soapbox now, return to the Chris Arnotti story, sorry. So when this happened, when the second vote occurred, TARP did pass, lots of happiness and celebration on the floor. What was your mood personally when that happened, and why did it change over time? What happened to you that changed the way you perceived it? Um, I, I was getting, you know, I, I if you had asked me, you know, 2002, 98, what I thought about Wall Street, I wouldn't say, hey, look, it's not the best thing to be doing with your life ethically, but it's not, it's benign. It's not positive, but it's not negative. You know, we're, it's, it's a job. Um, 2008, 2009, I'm starting to realizing, hey man, we really messed up. This is no longer just, this is, you know, we did some bad things. And I had thought at the time, I had expected everybody else to come to that, or a large majority to come to that same conclusion that, boy, we had done some really bad things. We got to change. Um, what I found was the exact opposite, that people said, well, what do you mean? We didn't, we didn't mess up. Um, we didn't do anything. What do you mean? You know, I, I had some jaw-dropping conversations on, on the Citibank trading floor with people who had just gotten bailed out. I mean, Citibank was saved. We, we were saved. We were we had our stock went down to, from 52 to two and the government stepped in. And, you know, there are people who, who ended up on guarantees getting paid saying, well, what do you mean? Like, I can't, how dare the government, um, you know, t- try to tell us what to do. We didn't mess up. We didn't mess up at all. And that was really disheartening to, to really feel like you're now almost, you know, in, in, in this company or in this industry that you no longer respect. Um, I mean, I, I stayed there for another, um, another five years. Um, I, um, did proprietary trading. I was left alone. Um, I, um, um, started at that point pivoting most of my personal time to my, um, photography, um, and, and doing things outside of work. Um, and I just became more and more disenfranchised with, a uh, disenfranchised, disenchanted, disenchanted with, uh, with Wall Street and how, the industry behaved. And at some point you quit. And yeah, in 2012, I quit. And um, we, we went our separate ways. As, uh, I took a package and left. Um, uh, about 2010, I had started during the crisis and, and prior to the crisis as a way to relax. I'd go on long walks through New York, really long walks, like 20-mile walks to neighborhoods where most people don't go. Um, some of those walks took me up into what's New York's poorest neighborhood, New York City's poorest neighborhood, Hunts Point, which is in the Bronx, which is by all metrics, one of the, you know, the highest crime, the low, the, the, the average family income of 19,000. Um, and I was spending more and more time up there, um, um, documenting and, and just spending time with people who were homeless street addicts. Um, so I had this really surreal two year period where, during the weekends and at some nights I was in, I was documenting and taking pictures of uh, people, addicts, street addicts, people living in, in, in crack houses. And then during the day coming and working on Wall Street. Different kind of um, addicts. Trading. Um, yes. <laughs> and at some point something had to give and it just, it just got to be too weird. And I stopped paying attention to my job. And so I said, look, I got to get out of here. And, and I left Wall Street. And for the last... Four five years I've been focused on my photography and writing. So besides Hunts Point, you've also been in a lot of r- rural communities uh, in West Virginia and Kentucky, if I remember correctly. Uh, what, are you, what are you looking at there? What are you, who are you talking to and what are you trying to understand? Um, I'm, I've been, for four years, I, three years, three and a half years, I did, I studied um, addiction and poverty in the Bronx. And then about two years ago, I said I needed to see the rest of America. So for the last two years, I've been driving, I put 150,000 miles on my car in that time, just driving to communities. I always say where people, very, people live, but people, nobody visits. Um, I was just in Prestonburg, Kentucky, which is a, a town and coal mining town in, in Kentucky. Um, I was in Kingsport, Tennessee, which has the highest heroin addiction in the U.S., one of the highest, um, El Paso, Selma, Alabama, Buffalo, and I'm going to Milwaukee. Um, I'm, I'm looking in more and more at trying to understand um, 
poverty in the United States, addiction. Um, and what I'm seeing, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll compare it to what I, my experience in Wall Street is what I'm seeing is in, uh, a part of America that is, you know, I, I've come to the conclusion based on those two experiences that there are two very, very, very different Americas um, in, this, in this country, and, and neither of them understands each other. And one, 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 basically, Wall Street people and others like them have an amazing advantage, and, and uh, the rest, people in Selma, Alabama, people in um, Prestonburg, Kentucky, um, uh, have an amazing disadvantage. So the people in those poorer communities, now, you know, one of the things I think it's important to remember is that these communities are shrinking. For the most part, people are leaving these poor towns. Uh, they're going to different cities. They're going to bigger towns and bigger cities. So it's sometimes misleading to look at, at the people who are there, say, compared to 25 years ago, because it's not the same people. Um, and opportunities are not there anymore. And the economy is not healthy, either because coal's not in demand or because the educational skills of the people who are there aren't so useful. And so the ones who do have the good skills just leave to go do something more productive and more meaningful elsewhere. But for the people who are there, uh, we have this impression, there's sort of this um, uh, revolt against the elites, against globalization, against free trade. And how much of that is, in your perception, is the elites imagining of what's making people angry versus something else? Uh, how aware of it are they? Do they talk about it? Do they see themselves as victims of policy decisions in Washington, whether that's accurate or not? Do they see themselves that way? I mean, I, they do see themselves as victims uh, of policy decisions. Um, they may not be as fully informed about those policy decisions as people would like them to be. Um, you know, I think what what sticks out to me is the anger. The anger is kind of three pronged. Um, one of it's very much uh, social. It's just sense of feeling kind of diminished in terms of people caring about them, them being made fun of. Everything they do is laughed at. If they like NASCAR, that's made fun of. If they, if they, if they vape, then that's considered wrong. Um, you know, they eat at McDonald's, that's, that's cheap. So there's this kind of just, if they go to church, they're considered silly. So there's just sense of just feeling like they're very much being mocked in terms of their lifestyle. But in terms of policy, you know, I think there's a sense of, there's two frustrations. There's one frustration at immigration, um, the idea that companies are just picking and in so many towns you go to the company, the factories are just gone there. You know, if there's a factory, it's, it's just a rusted steel Hulk and it's gone. And that's a very visceral to people that this idea that their factory has picked up and moved. Um, and then there's anger at, 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 at TARP, at the bailout, at this idea that, you know, there's a two sets of rules. There's a set of rules for me. When my factory moves, I don't get a bailout. But when Wall Street, you know, collapses, they get a bailout. So it may not, they may not say to me, hey, I really, just, I really don't like the fact that AIG didn't get a haircut <laughs> um, and it was unfair, but they say, I can't believe, you, you know, Wall Street got a bailout. I can't believe that when they failed, someone was there to help them. You know, their buddies were there to help them and nobody's here to help me. So it, it's kind of three kind of sources of anger, I see. Okay, I want to talk about the first one because it, it interests me. I, you know, I... I'm constantly trying to remind economists that money isn't everything and that although work is nice when it brings money, one of the things that also brings is meaning. And I think the problem of the lack of employment in the United States as we've recovered from this recession, especially, especially among less educated Americans, um, is, is a huge problem, not because they're poor and unemployed, which is unpleasant, no doubt about it, but because their life is not as as meaningful and worthwhile. So I totally understand that. What I wonder about is this idea of, of respect. Certainly, respect is hugely important to our sense of well-being. But when you say things like people don't respect NASCAR, church, vaping, uh, McDonald's, and among my friends, that's true. Uh, among the people I hang out with generally, higher educated people, those are all the attitudes they hold. But are the people who are enjoying those things, McDonald's, et cetera, why do they, do they, how do they perceive that they're not respected? They don't hang out much with people on the coast, say, who are telling them that 
Is it is it something they're perceiving on television? Is it something they're reading I think, about? I think it comes through. I come, think it comes through the media. But I think again, I think or uh, or or is it something that we educated people have convinced ourselves about them that isn't really true? So that's what you're um, talking to them. I'm kind I, of. Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I think, um, but I feel like you know I don't want to get overly simplified, but I, I, I guess I really do think there's two Americas, and I think the America that's doing well. Um, dominates the media, dominates their, uh, dominates the culture in terms of, you know, sociologists always talk about there's an in-culture and there's an out-culture. And we signal in ways of being in the in-culture in terms of the television shows, in terms of what's on movies and what's kind of, what's made fun of. And I think there's a fair amount of people who make fun of um, the culture of poverty um, in terms of, you know, how people get by. If people go to church, um, if people, you know, go to NASCAR or those sort of things, I think I think it it, it does filter across through um, the media, and I think some of it also is, you know, uh, comes from a place of being frustrated already, and then taking any perceived slights, um, you know, magnifying them. So, you know, we may not be as they they may be more overly sensitive than they should be, but that comes from a place of also being just frustrated economically, um, feeling very much like they're left behind. So I talked to, um, recently spoke with Angus Deaton, which I think will air before this episode does. And we've talked to others about the rising, uh, parent rising mortality in the 45 to 54 year old white non-Hispanic, uh, class. And, um, Andrew Gelman has pointed out, uh, it's mainly among women, not men. Yes, it is. That's and I, right. Have you, it is. You know, people are speculating it's despair, it's people overdosing on drugs or trying to get high uh, because their lives are so bad. Again, as a very casual street sociologist, what do you see that uh, might be relevant for that discussion? Um, you know, I was just talking to a, a minister in Prestonburg who, who just buried a, a 38-year-old woman, one of his one of his congregants, who shot herself in the stomach. Um, and I spent time in the in the nine days in Prestonburg. Some of it's just boredom. Some of it's just. Um, I always say that, um, and I, you know, I spend most of my time with addicts, um, both of all races and all types. Um, well, I always say where I see hope leaving, I see addiction entering. You know, I, where, where, where there are places where people don't feel, the, the old term is enemy, where they don't feel integrated, where they don't feel part of a community, where they don't feel valued, where they don't feel a sense of regulation, where they feel kind of, kind of aimless, meaninglessness. That, um, that really, that really, um, is where you see a lot of addiction and addiction is on the same spectrum of suicide. It's a f- different form of suicide, um, a slower form. But what drives addiction drives suicide. And in both cases, in my mind, it just comes from a kind of aimlessness, uh, meaninglessness. And it's very hard to say why. I mean, to say this is due to this. It's a whole, in my mind, it's a whole bunch of different things. But a lot of it comes from whether or not it's fairly whether or not it's fair to believe it, a lot of people feel very left behind and very isolated. And you can argue that that's not, they shouldn't feel that way. Um, but that is the way they feel. It's not a helpful, a sense, not a helpful there, there, response, actually. <laughs> but I understand the urge. To, no, 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 not on your part. I mean, the, I, I'm agreeing with you. I think, you know, the urge to say, well, they shouldn't feel that way. There's all kinds of great things happening and they should be taking advantage. Kind of doesn't matter if they really are in I despair. Mean, my, my my feeling on this is relatively probably different than a lot of people, which is, and it's hard. And, and again, it's one of these things where I, it's really hard because it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to say these things because they don't have numbers assigned to them, and we like to look at things in numbers. But I just feel very much like we've shifted over the course of my lifetime, at least, to valuing things over valuing community valuing um, material things. And in a lot of these places where people are frustrated, material things are hard to get. Um, they're hard to keep up with. They're hard to, they, 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 the rules are stacked against them. And so they have to rely on, have to, they, they, they rely on community. And I think 
we value community less than we used to. Um, and I think people know that. So as you said, people leave. The people, so you go to a small town that's lost its factory and the people who can get out, who want to go to New York City and make a lot of money, get an education, they, they leave. And what's left behind is people who know they can't get out. They watch people doing better than themselves who say, bye, I'm gone. And it's just this real sense of, hey, you know, I'm here by, I, I've been left behind. Um, and part of that feeling of left behind is some people didn't have a choice about being left behind. Some people stayed because they care, they wanted to just care for their family. So, you know, they didn't do so well in school early on because they had some strikes against them because they had a lot more complications in their personal life. They put value on other things other than just education. And we move so quickly these days that if you, if you start falling behind early, by 19, 20, you're, you're, you're gone, you're behind, you're over. So if you, if you didn't do so well in sixth grade and seventh grade and got pulled, you know, left behind, and you didn't get on that escalator moving up quickly, you're kind of stuck where you are. And, you know, you're, you're, you're made to know that. Yeah, I, you know, because I, so there's two parts to that. I mean, there's that's I think about this a lot. I mean, there are two parts to that one is the 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 first part, which is you are left behind. You don't have the the financial material well being. I don't think people have gotten any greedier or, or emphasize things more than material than community than they used to. But it is true that that there are a lot of people with a lot of nice things. So when you say there are two types of America, I think that's always been true. The question is how big are they? Relatively, and it's not just the people on Wall Street are doing well. There's a large group of Americans who are doing very, very well, and standard of living, I believe, is is understated in terms of how well the average person's done over the last 30, 40 years. But that doesn't matter. It's still the case that people at the bottom are really, I think it's ever more painful for them seeing what other people have. And you do perceive that on television, you do perceive that in the media. And I think then the question is, you know, how important is that perception? And then the final thing is, which I want to close with because you've written some interesting things about it, is that people do find community. They, you write about how McDonald's is the town square. So talk, talk about that and what other forms of civil society and communal interaction you're observing in these very poor places. Right. One of the things that I, I'm kind of pushing back on is the whole bowling alone idea, which is, you know, this idea that. Um, there isn't community left, and there there's, there is strong community. It's just not it's not found in places. It's you know one of the things I observed because I was spending time with addicts is you you spend a lot of time in the McDonald's, and I'm on the road. You spend a lot of time in McDonald's, and part of the reason you spend a lot of time in McDonald's is because that's where people go these days in some poorer towns to to rest, to have a free Wi-Fi, to have a, play, a clean bathroom and a place to plug in their um, phone. It's also where people go in the morning to meet each other. There's these morning groups in almost every town, these old, I call them old man groups, where they come and meet each other. And sometimes they're very formal. There are 30 people who come each morning to have coffee with each other. So even in these places, in, in these poor communities, there's a lot of a lot of community. I call it ad hoc community, self, self-built community. Yeah. It takes places in places like McDonald's. And that just tells you how overweight, you know, that they're doing it in a franchise whose goal is fast food. <laughs> and, and, you know, is, is whole, is, it tells you how strong people's urge for community is, how strong people's urge for being social is. And what I've, seen, what I've become convinced of more and more is um, in many ways, what's happened to poor Americans is they have less community in their workplace. There's a, you know, the, the, yeah. the work is less meaningful than it used to be. You used to work in a factory. You had a bunch of other factory workers who you could hang out with. But if, you know, if you work as a cash register or you work kind of, you know, sales rep or something like that, um, or you work in a fast food franchise, even there's just, there's less of a community in the workplace. And so you, you form community outside the workplace and they're doing it in these very ad hoc manners and it's working, you know, you know, you see it in, in churches are becoming even more important in small towns and, and McDonald's are and, 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 and Walmart parking lots, you know, yeah, even in places like me. that. Yeah, what's happening in Walmart parking lots? 
I mean, you know, you in, in, like in Prestonburg, you have these these tables, you know, on the, that line the Walmart where people just hang out on Friday nights. So just the teenagers go there to hang out, <laughs> you know, and they meet there and they they all hang out and they they organize and sometimes they drink beer there and and. You know, it's gotten so bad or so good as it is that the police now patrol it. They patrol the Walmart parking parking lot with a with a with a dedicated policeman on a bicycle. Hmm. You know, because so many people hang out in the Walmart parking parking lot because you know that's that's their community in some senses. So what I think has changed, and you know, we've had a lot of conversations on this program about the future work and jobs and artificial intelligence robots, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and the challenges and wonderful potential that all this has. What seems to me that's, that's changed, you really hit on it when you talked about people in the sixth and seventh grade falling behind. You know, public schools in America have never been great in the poorest parts of the, of the country and in the richest suburbs, they've always been pretty good. And people, when they talk about my, my friends who rail against public education, uh, conveniently forget that in the public schools in the rich suburbs are pretty good. Uh, in the poorest parts, they're awful, and there's a lot of reasons for that, some of which is, I believe, the publicness of the schools, but that's not the only problem. I don't want to can pretend that that's a magic solution. I do think it would make things better. But I think what's changed in the economy as a whole is that you know, in the old days, meaning 1950, 1960, 1970, a person who didn't finish high school – yeah, it was it was a disadvantage. Some of them succeeded, some struggled a little bit, but he could have a decent life. That's not true anymore, and that's mainly a good thing in the sense that the same way that when the car got invented, you couldn't make a living as a blacksmith. Okay, fine. Uh, it's not you know people who wanted to be blacksmiths are going to have to find different things. The challenge is, is that for some folks, falling off that that escalator of of progress from school to high school to college to career. It's it's much more debilitating than it was 50 years ago, and we haven't, as as a country or as a community in these towns, figured out the way to help those folks stay together, seems to me. That's, what, what, what's your reaction fair. to that? I think that's very fair. I think, um, I think, you know, the flip side of the advantages of an education growing is that the disadvantages of not having an education are, are also growing. Um, I think, um, I think, you know, I, I say that broadly speaking, we've kind of shifted from sorting by, um, uh, by race and which was bad to kind of sorting by education. We tend to re- reward people who have a, you know, a, a wall street trader is more similar than to a professor of sociology at Harvard than he is to a truck driver. You know, they have more in common in terms of how they think and how they, how they behave. And I think the, the people who are really suffering are the people who don't have that ability or desire or, or, or whatever to get an education. And I think it's, it's becoming harder and harder to get by with less and less education. And I, I really don't know how to solve that. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't either. I have some ideas, but that's probably for another uh, another episode. But thanks for your work, Chris, especially out in the field. I think it's really provocative and interesting. And um, we'll put up links to your Flickr page where people can look at your photographs and your Twitter account and read really interesting uh, stuff there. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a really wonderful discussion. My guest today has been Chris Arnotti. Chris, thanks for being part of it. All right. Thank you again. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.